0: Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy! So would you pray with me, please? God, I, I want to now ask one more time today that you would grow our trust in helping us to believe and know that when we look at your word at what you have to say to us, that in a way that is unique, that you're communicating who you are, what you're like to us. God, I know that If we took 50 people and put them in a room and asked them to read a certain passage of the Bible, we might all find 50 different beliefs about what it's saying. And that's a challenge to us. It's a scary thing. So God, what we're depending on is the presence of your spirit. We believe that you're here and that you communicate through your word. So God, I pray for a sense of confidence in, tru- in the truth of what you have to say. God, I pray that if in any way I say what is wrong or is not accurate, um, please, God, guard all of us from being influenced what's ro- by what's wrong. God, on the other hand, I pray that you would take truth and you would invade our hearts and our minds, our wills and our body. And you'd be transforming us into your people. And God, I pray that when we live out this truth, that we would do so in love. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how many of you are familiar with your history, but for those of you who know Jewish history... Um, you you might know that the very last person who ever had the official title King of the Jews uh, died in probably the same year that Jesus was actually born, somewhere around 4 BC. And his name was Herod. And Herod has always been known, even when he was alive, he was known as Herod the Great. And although... When he died, his sons, his kingdom was divided up, and some of his sons actually ruled. None of them ever were given the title king. So Herod was the last official king of the Jews. Now, Herod the Great uh, was not a nice man, he was called great because he was a great builder in Israel. And he was called great because he was really, really good at administering a kingdom and bringing a kind of unity to what was then just a jumbled mess of special interests in Israel. Now, Herod was also paranoid. And he had 10 wives. Uh, Most of them he ended up killing, along with some of his in-laws and along with some of his sons. And he actually saw to it that a handful of infants and toddlers in Bethlehem were killed when he came to believe that a potential rival king had been born there. Now, Herod uh, was a phenomenal builder. No other leader in Israel's history did the building projects that Herod did. One of those building projects is a place called the Herodium. Uh, This is a picture of what the Herodium might have looked like when Herod was alive. That palace complex on the top could be seen for hundreds of miles in Israel. Now, to build this palace complex, Herod actually had to build a mountain. And he built this mountain in the wilderness of Judea, and he actually built it. He instructed that this building, this mountain, was going to be the highest peak in all of the Judean wilderness. This is still there. This is what it looks like today. And Donna and I actually got to climb this and walk around in the Herodium. Now, Herod built this extraordinary palace structure as the place. It had one purpose. Well, actually, one overriding purpose. Herod built this as the place where he was going to be buried. And archaeologists are pretty sure that a couple years ago, they actually found the grave of Herod built into the side of this complex on this mountain. Herod's only problem as he was building this complex was that he knew he would not be missed. And when he was old, and when he was sick, and when he was dying, he knew that the people of Israel were glad that he would die. He had brought unity to Israel, but he was not loved in Israel. And he knew that nobody was going to cry at his funeral. So, one of the last things Herod did is he ordered that a hundred or so leading Jewish officials would be arrested and imprisoned in what was then a sports complex, an arena in Jericho. And he ordered that the moment he died, all of those leading men of Israel would be killed so that there would at least be somebody who was crying when Herod died. Now fortunately, although the leaders were in fact arrested and imprisoned, the order to kill them was not actually carried out. Now right about the time all of this was going on, a baby was born in Bethlehem. He was the one baby who managed to survive the slaughter that Herod ordered. And this baby was destined to be the final and the only lasting king of the Jews. And when that baby got old and died on the cross, on the plaque above his head, written in three languages, that's what it said, King of the Jews. Now, just like Herod, because he was a king, Jesus wanted to build something for which he would be remembered. No other leader in all of history built what Jesus did. And because he was a king, just like Herod, Jesus wanted his people to be united. Now, what he built was us, the church. And the church is still standing. And what he intends to unify is us. And there is still work to be done. Is there not? So to finish our series this month in our partner month, I want to read some of the final words of our king. These words actually come in a prayer that he prayed. So I'll read just a few of the words that Jesus prayed, and then I'm going to talk about the significance of this prayer. And I'm going to invite you when we're done to consider joining us all as partners in Horizon Church. The prayer is in John chapter 17. Just a few verses I'm going to read from verses 20 to 23. 23. A few sentences from this prayer and then we'll talk about it. Picking up in the middle of the prayer, this is what Jesus prayed. I'm not praying only for these disciples, the people who were with Jesus at that moment. I'm not only praying for these disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, So that they may be one as we are one. I am in them. And you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. That the world will know that you sent me. And that you love them. As much as you love me. Now there are. There are all kinds of significant ideas that we could talk about in that prayer. We only have time for a few. So I hope that you'll be able to think with me about just a few of these really important ideas that Jesus prayed for. First of all, Jesus prayed for this. Do all of your prayers get answered? in the way you hoped they would get answered. It's not the case for me. And although sometimes I don't know why God isn't answering prayers the way I want them to be answered, I know enough about me to know that at least one of the reasons my prayers are not always answered is that my motives are not always stellar. Sometimes I pray because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what might happen and I want it to go away. I don't think fear is a very great motive. Sometimes I pray because I think I know what's best and I tell God that though He may not agree, I know. History has proven that I don't always know what's best. Sometimes my prayers aren't answered because I know that my heart is not as pure as I would like it to be. And that impurity in my heart influences what I pray for. Sometimes my prayers are just whiny. I don't think Jesus had those problems. I don't think Jesus prayed fearfully, or selfishly, or whiny, or in a way that was opposed to what God wants, so are Jesus' prayers always answered? I think one way to ask this is this. Can the will of God be resisted? What God wants to happen, is it always going to happen? I mean, this is, after all, Jesus praying this prayer to his Father. So it's fair to ask, This is a prayer that would most certainly be in perfect alignment with the will of God, what God wants done. So can the will of God be resisted? Obviously, yes, it can. Look around. What God wants done is not always done. There's obvious resistance to the will of God. But I do know this God's will is ultimately going to be accomplished. God's end game is irresistible, it cannot be stopped. And I think that's why Jesus prayed what he did in verse 23, for example. My Bible reads this way. This is what I read. May they experience perfect unity. Now that word perfect is a word that means to be fully developed, to be brought to completion, to be brought to fulfillment, which is why some of you are looking at Bible translations that probably more accurately say that Jesus prayed, may they be brought to perfect unity. This is going to happen. It will be done. This unity Jesus prayed for. There will come a day when you and I and every child of our father will irresistibly enjoy a kind of unity and oneness that is unimaginable now. There will come a day when we will experience unimaginable joy in each other's presence when we'll enjoy a kind of unselfish regard for each other, a kind of selflessness brought about, not because we think less of ourselves, but just because we think of ourselves less, living in the presence of our magnificent Father and Savior. Someday it will be done. And as is the case with everything in the kingdom of our God, it is meant to begin now. So, Jesus prayed for this. And Jesus prayed this for us, you and I. If you went back to the beginning of this prayer, you'd read that Jesus actually started praying for himself. And then he switched and he started praying for his disciples, the men that were with him at that moment, men and women that he deeply loved, men and women who had devoted themselves to him, men and women that he was about to leave. And so he prayed for them. But Jesus knew that these disciples who were there with him, he knew that they would make more disciples. And those disciples would make more disciples. And they would make more disciples. And here we are. I don't understand how, at that moment, how Jesus thought of us. I don't understand how, in that moment, Jesus was imagining some kind of a future and how he foresaw us. But I know that he did. And Jesus fully intended to intercede, to pray for us. In fact, according to the men who were in that room with Jesus when he prayed this, they came to understand, having listened to Jesus and having learned from Jesus, they came to understand that even after Jesus left, he continued praying, and they understand that he is right now praying for us. Among all the other activities that Jesus is doing right now, they wrote that Jesus continues to intercede, to pray for us. His praying for you and for I never ends. I can't begin to understand that, but it's true. And if this is what Jesus prayed then, it is certainly what he is praying right now. May they, that's you and that's me, may they be brought to perfect unity. Father, as you are in me and I am in you, may they be one. Jesus prays this for us. And Jesus prays this for us because it is contrary to our fallen nature. Do you know, be, because I am exactly like you in my fallenness, I know that it's very hard for us to look at ourselves and to understand why we do what we do sometimes. I know what we do, it's just sometimes I don't know why we do it. And one of the things I know about us that I don't understand exactly is that I know very often we are more comfortable being exclusive than we are in being inclusive. I have been so impressed in this last year by how hard many of you have worked to get our church through this craziness. And I and all of us will be forever in your debt. Last March when it was just 15 or so of us in this room looking at empty seats and staring at a camera it was hard to do. But you did it. You showed up and you practiced and you did it. You stood back there behind a panel and you did it. And when it got to a place where we knew that there would be people coming back, some of whom were people who were the most vulnerable health-wise If it meant wearing masks so that they could be here, you did it. As much as we hate these things, you did it. Quite a few of you who were here all that time, you're here today. You have been doing this all year. And you did it because you were faithful to all of us. And I will never forget that. Thing is, even at our best, we are sometimes no different than the closest friends of Jesus. One time, a non Jewish woman came to Jesus begging Jesus to help her sick daughter. The disciples who were watching this did not think that Jesus would want to be bothered by an outsider. They didn't think that Jesus should be bothered by someone who, in any other circumstance, might actually be an enemy. Someone who was radically different than Jesus and his people. And so when she came asking Jesus for help in Matthew chapter 15, it says the disciples said to Jesus, Send her away. She's bothering us. Send her away. Another time in Mark chapter 10, Mark wrote how there were parents bringing their children to Jesus just because they wanted Jesus to bless them. Now, the disciples who were watching this did not think Jesus would want to be bothered with children who could not in any way contribute to advancing his cause. And so they said, send them away. Send them away. Another time when Jesus was extraordinarily busy, he had spent an entire day teaching great crowds of people who were pressing in on him and pressing in on him and demanding more and more from him. And at the end of the day, when these great crowds of people were hungry, the disciples wanted some rest. They wanted some alone time with Jesus. And so they said, Jesus, send them away. Send them away. Jesus, of course, wasn't having any of it. To a non-Jewish, outsider, sometime enemy, Jesus saw her and her daughter, and her daughter was healed, and the disciples were humbled. Parents got their children blessed, And the disciples were scolded. And the large crowds. Not only did Jesus say, I will not send them away, but he told his disciples, well, you feed them. And what a lesson they learned that day. As devoted as we can be to each other, and I am so grateful for your devotion this past year. As hard as we work for people who are in our circle, people we love, we can be very much like those long ago friends. Send them away. Send them away. It's hard for us to love or even like people who are not in our circle. It's hard for us to love and even like people who disagree with us. People who are outside our circle of friends, who in other circumstances might actually be enemies. It's hard to love or even like needy people, demanding people. Why don't they just take care of themselves? It's hard to love or even like nasty people. People who are always wanting and wanting and wanting and never giving. People who are messing up the little world that we've created for ourselves and are very comfortable in. People who want things that we think are bad for our church, our city, our country, our world. People who chew with their mouths open. People who think they are right and we are certain they are not. People who would say that exact same sentence about us. It's just hard Harder even than hard. I think it's impossible. I don't think it can be done. On our own. Without the power of Jesus, we can't do it. And so isn't it good to know. Jesus prays for this because it is contrary to our fallen nature. And Jesus prays for this because he wants the very best for us. Now, I know that you believe that. I believe it, and I know you do too, that Jesus wants our best. The problem is that sometimes Jesus actually tells us that that means we are going to have to do things we really do not want to do. He tells us we must love our enemies. And we cannot possibly imagine how that is for our best. He tells us that it's actually better to be giving things rather than receiving them. And on the surface, most of us believe that until what it is that we have to give is something we really want to keep. And then we wonder, how is this for my best? He tells us that if we want to save our lives, and by saving our lives, I take it that Jesus means to satisfy our own dreams. To grab life and go for all the gusto that I want. To try to arrange my life around all those things I think I need to gain to make me happy. Jesus said that if we try to do that, if we try to save our lives, we will lose them. But when we are willing to lose our lives for him, then we gain life. And that just seems so upside down. There is nobody else in the universe telling us to do that. So it's very hard to believe that this would be for my best. Harder even to do than believe it. There is a book you really need to read. I've read it once, listened to it twice. George Clooney is now turning it into a movie that will come out sometime this year. It's called Boys in the Boat. It's a story that is just uh, borderline unbelievable. Tells a true story of nine boys who came from very different backgrounds, but who joined a rowing team in the University of Washington during the darkest days of the Depression. Against everybody's expectations, this team of wannabes managed to defeat the elite rowing teams in the Ivy League schools, and then they went on to beat Hitler's rowing team and win The gold medal in the 1936 Olympics. Now, here's the thing. What these nine boys discovered when they started rowing together was that their goal was not only to win, but to experience something in team sports that very few people will ever get to experience. And people do not experience it for the same reason that we have a hard time believing that Jesus wants the best for us. These boys sent out to experience a level of harmony and cooperation and oneness and unity. That comes close to heaven and perfection. But to experience it, they discovered they would have to lose themselves. There's a section in this book that gets quoted often. I've seen this several places. This is what it says. There is a thing that sometimes happens in rowing. It is hard to achieve and hard to define. It's called swing. It only happens when all eight oarsmen are rowing in such perfect unison that no single action by anyone is out of sync with all of those, all of the others. Sixteen arms and legs must begin to pull. Sixteen knees must begin to fold and unfold. Eight bodies must begin to slide forward and backward. Eight backs must bend and straighten all at once. Each minute action, each subtle turning of the wrists, must be mirrored exactly by each oarsman from one end of the boat to the other. Only then will the boat continue to run unchecked, fluidly, gracefully between pulls of the oars. Only then will it feel as if the boat is part of each of them, moving as if it is on its own. Only then does the pain entirely give way to exaltation. And rowing then becomes a kind of perfection, a perfect language. There was a man named George Pocott who designed and he built the boats that these boys rowed in. He became their mentor, their champion, their cheerleader. He talked often about what I just read and he said to these boys that there is a spiritual value in rowing. And he meant by that, quote, the losing of self entirely into the whole. And when you do this, it's near perfection. And when you near perfection, you are touching the divine. And he explained that the hardest moment is the moment when you are sacrificing yourself for others. But in that moment, you will be most fully yourself. More alive than you will ever be. Nine boys believed him, and they found it to be true. They lived it. They had moments like that. More alive than most of us will ever be. How like Jesus? How like Jesus? This can happen in a marriage. It can happen in families. It can happen in churches. When we give ourselves away, joyfully giving ourselves away to bring about the very best for someone else, When you do, there will come moments when you are more alive than you ever thought possible. And when those moments come, they come to us as gifts. Gifts from Jesus who told us the truth when he said, if you try to save your own life, You will lose it. But if you are willing to lose your life for my sake, you gain it all. And Jesus wants this for us. Of course he does. Because he wants for us the best. And so he prays for us because he wants the very best for us. And he prays this for us because he wants the very best for us and for a world he loves. One day maybe 30ish years ago, I was driving home from Asheville, North Carolina, having and attended an event for church leaders down there. I was alone. I wanted to be alone. I was struggling with God, I was wrestling with God, so I decided to get away for a while alone and wrestle with God alone. I was driving home in one of those big old boats that we used to call station wagons. The Chevy station wagon, the kind of station wagon with the fake wood paneling running down the sides. And I had a moment of grace, unimaginable grace. I was wrestling with God, and God won. And He gave me a moment, a gift of deeply personal, profound, unforgettable grace. And somewhere along Skyline Drive in Virginia, I pulled my boat off the road, sat on a stone wall, and I prayed aloud to God God, this is so good. I want everyone to have it. I want everyone to have this. I want it for everyone. Dallas Cowboy fans. Democrats, Republicans, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, for the people at the church to which I was returning who did not want me as their pastor, for people at the church to which I was returning who was glad I was their pastor. For my neighbor at the time who had a trashy backyard. For people enough I will always envy who are rich enough to have a vacation home in Wyoming. For people in my family I love who are far from God. For the young clerk at Redner's who has a tattooed neck and a row of safety pins piercing his eyebrows. For the young clerk at Redner's who never once in his entire life sat down for a family dinner. Never once. And sitting on that stone wall, I understood that grace is a gift that you cannot receive without desperately wanting to give it away. It's the one gift that you simply can't have selfishly. It's just too good. Too grand to keep for yourself. If you want it for yourself, then it's not grace. Now, I confess to you, I don't live there every day. Most days like you, I'm just working hard to get through the day. So I need you. I need to be with you. I need you to be with me because I want to desperately live In a community of grace. That's the only way I know to hold on to this. And that's why Jesus said that it is our life together by which the rest of the world will know who He is. It is our life together. Our life together that tells the world there's a Savior. And that means that this unity is visible. People will have to actually see it. So Jesus prayed this for us because he wants the best for us and for the world he loves So would you join me? Would you join us? Would you partner with us this year? In a tiny way, you can make this partnership visible by getting a little partner card. I already have mine. I already signed it. I'll leave it here. For those of you watching, in the description of the video... You'll find my email address and you can send me an email right now. Ask for cards and I'll send them to you. But I want to pray for you and I want to pray for all of us that someday, maybe it's this day, you will have your own experience sitting on your own stone wall And you will be given a gift so grand and so good you will say, God I want everyone to know this. I want everyone to know this. I want to pray for that to be true. Father, I can never thank you enough for how you won a wrestling match with me and helped me to experience grace in such a profound and personal and deeply moving way. God, I don't know why that kind of experience is not where I live every moment of every day, but I don't. I don't know why I had to wait years I don't know why that experience has not been true for every one of us. And I don't know why sometimes we have to wait for years, but we do. God, I believe in the power of your spirit. And I believe that even right now you can be filling our lives and our minds and our hearts, warming our hearts helping us to know and experience your overwhelming grace. And God, I pray that you will help us to understand and believe that this is just so good. We want everyone to have it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website of horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.